0: Would you pray with me? Loving Father, we thank you for this hour. We thank you for these moments of worship. We thank you for these hymns and words that echo back to us your word and give us words to express to you. We are mindful now we come before a holy God. And yet somehow in the wonder of wonders, in your absolute perfection holiness, you welcome us by the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. And, oh, Father, we want to shout because that grace exceeds our sin. And we are so grateful for that grace. Thank you for your cleansing. Even now, do that work in our heart of any known sin or any open rebellion in us. Let us lay it aside, lay it down, give it to you, and trust you even now to speak a word to give us victory over it and through it, that the name of Jesus would be exalted. And we ask you to speak to us from your word, that we might know you, understand you, and your ways and your purposes, and that in our vision of you, our scene of you today, you would do what you need to do to give us desires that are holy and righteous, that make us more like your son Jesus. Father, we pray for those who Jesus is just a name, he's an idea, he's a concept, but they don't know you, Father, they don't know your Son. We pray that your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, would use your word and you would convict them of their need for you, convict them that what they need to turn from and leave is so much less than what they'll receive in following you, and that at the cross they might meet new life in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of their sins, and a new day, that will go all the way into eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, our text this morning is again Second Peter chapter 1. We're again looking at those uh, verses we've been looking at, verses 1 through 4, primarily verse 3 and 4. But as last week, I would like to, uh, before we get to that text, read another text, and this one also from the Psalms. The 107th Psalm is a psalm that speaks of God's people and the difficult experiences that they faced in their difficult days they called upon the Lord for help He helped them in hunger and thirst and darkness, imprisonment and distress, even in the shadow of death He helped them overcome powerful forces even their own sin and sickness He protected them as they journeyed through the world trying to serve Him He was with them in their storms and uh, helped them through all of that He brought justice into their life. He cursed those who rejected him and turned their blessed land into a cursed land. And for those who were his, he took the barrenness of their life and the barrenness of even where they lived and made it into abundance. And in all of this, his people responded over and over in praise. The psalm begins with these words in verse 1 of it. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. And then he went on to talk about more of those troubles and difficulties. And then in verse 15, he said these words. I want you to say them with me. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And then the psalmist describes more difficulties and more troubles and how God was adequate and met every one of those needs. And in verse 21, the people again say this. Read them with me. Verse 21, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And then the psalmist in the next 10 verses describes more difficulties and more problems and more struggles in their life. And yet the Lord helps them. And so they say in verse 31, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love for his wondrous works to the children of man. And then the remaining verses he again describes more of these difficulties. And at the end, they say these words in beginning with verse 42. Stand with me and say them with me. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. My goal and desire this morning is to help you consider the steadfast, amazing, overabounding goodness and graciousness and generosity of God. To take a truth that you know maybe intellectually, but you haven't tasted in a long time, or you simply, even if you have, you want to taste again, and know today how generous a God we serve. So let's go to Second Peter. Verses we've read before, verse 1, of 2 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to read it, you listen, Simon, Simeon, Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. How do you get all this goodness, amazing stuff? It comes to a relationship with God and Jesus Christ, by faith, by simple faith in him, you rise to the very highest of any saint, including Peter, the leader of the early church. You're on the same standing. You have the same righteousness because it's not your righteousness. It's the righteousness of God that becomes yours in relationship to him. And then he says in verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That moment of salvation brings with it something that changes all the rest of our days. We've thought of COVID-19 and, and we've learned and thought a lot about these viruses that get into our bodies and then replicate and multiply at alarming rates so they overwhelm a the system and bring sickness. What I want to tell you, when you meet Jesus Christ, you're born again. You get a seed, not a virus, but you get a seed of God's mercy and grace. And it begins, it's normally meant to to multiply and multiply until it overwhelms every single dimension of who you are. And you become like Christ. His grace and peace dominates us. That's what we're on the road to becoming. And then he says in verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desires. And we've said our goal is to memorize Second Peter, all of us. So any Sunday I may be calling you up here and say, quote Second Peter, okay? I'm really not going to do that, but I might give you an opportunity if you really want to do it. But let's, let's let's work on it a little bit. Let's take verse 3 where we're going to really focus our attention this morning. Let's take verse 3. Would you say it with me, phrase by phrase? Let's say it. Verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. You got it? All right, let's say it again. Here we go. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Now you got it, right? All right, let's do it again. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Now I know you got it. Let's try it again. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to. That's right. Through the who called us to his own glory and excellence. Oh, now I know you've got it. Let's do it again. And this time say it to somebody right next to you as we do it. Make sure they hear what you say. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Oh, great. This is a piece of cake now. Let's do it again. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Boy, this something. We're really good. Let's do it again. Here we go. His divine power has granted to us. All things through that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory. All right, let's do it again. Here we go. I tell you what. Just just put them all up, put them all up, but just bounce, bam, bounce through them all. Over. Now turn to someone next to you and say it. You can look at the screen, turn to someone else, try to say it. Just talk to someone next to you, talk behind him. Now what do we spend? Maybe four minutes, three minutes, and you're that close to having it memorized. I'm talking to everybody, including old geezers like me. We can still memorize scripture. We just gotta focus a little bit. And if you'll do it. It's not just the act of memorizing some things and saying, I got it. God's Spirit will take those words, and He will echo them and echo them, and He'll bring them to your mind at all kinds of times as through the day you meditate on this as you memorize God's Word. Let's memorize this. As we look at it again next week, we'll really be valuable to have it really down settled in our heart. Thank you. You may be seated. All four of these first verses in Peter's second later reverberate with a wonderful truth. We've been putting layer upon layer upon layer to this passage this morning. We bring the third layer to it. And what I want us to see is that thing that echoes in all four verses, and next week we'll bring it all together, I hope in a way that will be very usable and very practical. But the the thing that I want you to see this morning above everything else is I want you to see something about God's generosity. Boys and girls, come join me on the platform. All the children, come join me on the platform, except only those who like sweets. You like sweets come join me on the platform just come straight on up to the platform don't stop for anything okay you just heard me use a word you No, know, I'm not I don't buy I even took a shower last week so come on you can get a little closer um, okay um First of all, I've got three kinds of candy. I'm just interested in taking a quiz. Uh, what's, who, only raise your hand for one kind. Who's favorite, who would rather get this morning an M&M's, Skittles, or Sunburst? All right, let's do M&M's. Who wants a bag, who likes M&M's, okay? Who wants Skittles? Oh, Skittles are very popular. And anybody like the uh, little Sunburst? I got a couple of those. All right. Oh, very good. All right, well, we'll see. We'll talk about it. Um, Let's talk about what you heard me use the word generous. Can somebody tell me what does the word generous mean? What do you think the word generous means? Being nice. Means being nice? How is it being nice? What does the generous do? That... By giving someone something that you have. By giving someone something that you have that belongs to you and sharing it with them, that would be a generous thing to do. Okay, anybody else have some ideas what word generous means? What do you think it means? Being be nice, okay, okay. Uh, all right, let's maybe think of it this way. There's another word. It's the opposite of generous. It's called being stingy. What's what does it mean to be stingy? Mean. All right, that's it's the opposite. It's not nice. It's mean if you're stingy. But how is it mean? Why? What makes what makes stinginess mean? It means like you're keeping stuff for yourself. It means I'm keeping it all mine. You can't have it. I'm not sharing it. That would be stingy, wouldn't it? For instance, I've, you may have noticed, I don't know if you picked up on it, but I have a lot of M&Ms and a lot of Skittles and a lot of Sunbursts, and they all belong to me. So if I'm stingy, if I'm stingy, I'm going to take home as much candy as I brought in. But now if I'm generous, what do you think I'm going to do? I'm going to give you... Oh, you thought I was actually going to give you... Oh, all of us. I'm going to give... Not just you. I have to give one to. Everyone. How many of you like one of these? Okay, we're gonna have to pick one though. I can't. You know, it's too much for everybody. So, I'm gonna choose the M&Ms. So, will M&Ms be okay? Everybody like M&Ms, okay? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna share the M&Ms with you guys this morning because you see I've got quite a few. So, I'm gonna share them today. Um, here we go. You can have one. You can have one. And you can have one. What? You don't want one? You want half of one? No. You can have one. Anybody else want one? Am I being generous? She says I'm being generous, so that's pretty good. Maybe brothers and sisters should have them, and so you have get. But you think I'm being stingy? But I'm, well, what if I gave you two? What if I gave you one more and you had two M&M's? Uh, 100. So, so, 100. so, again, if I was, did the generous thing, what would I do? Give us I'd give you a whole bag, wouldn't I? So, a whole bag. Well, okay, you can think about that. and Now you know what generous means, and that's what I wanted. But I tell you what, you can go back to your seats. I want you to pay close attention because we're going to talk about God and how generous he is to us. And to make sure you remember that, you can get one bag of M&M's and one bag out of the other ones. And after church, when mom and dad say, you can open them and eat them, okay? So get one bag in each basket. Somebody, hall monitor here, and uh, take back your seats because I'm trying to be generous today. so. So I want to picture and stir up in your mind. But I hope you're already very well of it, but maybe, maybe not. And that is the generosity of God. And of course, his generosity comes into our life in so, so many different ways. And since today is July 4th, it's maybe natural that we who are Americans live in this great country, recognize that um, God's generosity has been shown to us. Uh, I know, I know. That God's generosity has been shown to us in simply the privilege of being a citizen of this great country. We celebrate today our independence from tyranny. And at the same time, we humbly acknowledge our dependence on a very generous and gracious God. I don't know about you. Everyone might not feel this way. But I can't imagine another time or another place I would have liked to have grown up and lived in than to be privileged to live in these United States even in these days. And it all is a gift from God who's been very generous to us. I, um, we talked about what hymns to sing this morning, America the Beautiful. There's a lot of good words in it. But the really good words are the way Ray Charles sings it. I don't really know Ray Charles much, but I've heard him sing this. And boy, it's something. I wish I could do it like he does it. I certainly can't sing like he does, but I don't even think I can get the rhythms like he does. But this is Ray Charles' versions of America the Beautiful. America, America, may God thy gold refine till all success be nobleness and every gain divine. And then he said, as you know, when I was in school, we used to sing it something like this. Listen here. Oh, beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, for purple mountain majesties above the fruited plain. But now wait a minute. I'm talking about America. Sweet America, you know God done shed his grace on thee. He crowned thy good. Yes, he did in brotherhood from sea to shining sea. You know, I wish I had somebody to help me sing this. And he had thousands when he sang it every time, you know. And they joined in. America, I love you, America. You see, my God had done shed his grace on thee, and you ought to love him for it. Because he, he... He, he crowned thy good. He told me he would with brotherhood from sea to shining Sioux. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, I thank you, Lord. That's the way we ought to worship God as citizens of this great country in gratitude to him for what he's given us. He's been generous to us. He's been generous to our country. He's been generous to his land. He has shed his grace on us to this very hour. Now, this God who's generous to us is generous to all people. And this God who is generous, of course, is sovereign. That means your story, my story, every one of us, whether obedient servants or whether we live in rebellion against him, when it's all said and done, he will take every bit of it and it will further his gospel message, it will further his glory in the world, one way or another. And that's the same true for every nation. Think of the Roman Empire. We could spend hours and days thinking of all the awesome things that were accomplished and done and the exploits that happened in the building and the conquest and the advancement of the Roman Empire. Yet, the Roman Empire's most influential, enduring legacy that has changed the world to this day was one they never intended. But the Roman Empire is what made possible, was the vehicle by which we have global Christianity and the message of God around the entire planet. It all started right there in the Roman Empire. History is the story of Christ. It is the history, it is the story of the Lord and his kingdom. His story is his story, as we say. So you think of ancient Egypt and all that mighty civilization did, and yet the real enduring legacy of Egypt above all else is the exodus from Israel and that redemption story has just reverberated through those days. Assyria and Babylon were mighty civilizations, yet their enduring legacies are how God disciplined and deported his rebellious Israel to refine them to still be his people. Media, Persia, was a mighty civilization, but its enduring legacy above all else is how it fulfilled God's promise to restore Israel and usher in the days when the Messiah would come through it. Mighty Rome, with all those things that that made possible the spread of the gospel, the common language, Koine Greek, the transportation system, the communication system, the ability to, to travel, to move around that world, all of it made it possible for it to be the hinge that connected the old covenant of what God had done in his people Israel with the new Messiah and the new covenant that would come. And because it was happening, the framework of the Roman Empire would explode upon the world and nothing would stop it until every tongue, language, and nation knows that story. And so it goes. Great empires of history rise, some rage and vainly plot. Many of them oppose Christ and his Lord, but they fall. And still, in spite of themselves, they ultimately, unwittingly serve God's rule and God's purpose. Let me tell you, the United States exists for one major reason, and that is to serve Christ the Lord. The United States exists to serve Christ the Lord. On this day and every day, we who are citizens of this country, as we pray for our nation, the best prayer that we can pray is with confidence, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And do that through my nation. Because we are a democratic republic, we have the opportunity to declare truth in public squares, to seek for righteousness and persuade others to end immoral, unrighteous practices that destroy life and destroy families and destroy a nation. We participate in ways that other generations never had the opportunity. And yet, even as we do that, thankful for that privilege, we are mindful that while we are citizens of this United States, we are first of all subjects to the King of King and his kingdom is everlasting. And we remember that at this very moment, that king is gathering a holy nation of people from every tribe and tongue and language bought by his own blood. And one day when the United States is gone, and there is coming a day when it will be gone, but his church and his kingdom will live and endure and advance, and that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, when I think of the blessings that this nation has brought that has advanced the gospel in our own land and has done much to help it around the world, If I had to single out one single thing, I think I would come down to religious liberty. This nation, as no other, gave the right to all people to choose and to worship God as they saw fit. Or to not worship Him at all. But to stop using the power of state. To stop using governments. To stop using taxes. To stop using licenses. To stop using power to try to force people into some spiritual dogma. This has to be given by freedom as God's people trust him and open his word and read it for himself. And that liberty did not come without a price. And I would just simply, because it is July 4th and because we are a Baptist church, remind you that the leaders in that in this nation's history were Baptists and Quakers. In the early 1600s and 1700s, while Christianity and Christians had come from Europe and they taught the heart of the gospel in a marvelous way. They did not take the Reformation to its logical and biblical end, and that is to see the freedom that has to be given to the souls of human beings to make their choice, if it's a real choice, to serve God. But Baptists came with that freedom to read the Bible, to interpret themselves. Among other things, they notice that that it really doesn't line up with scriptural truth to baptize babies. That baptism was a, a profession of your faith, an aware faith, a known faith in Jesus Christ. And so they declared that. Of course, to, to wonderful, strong Christians who, who believed the Lord, but, but looked and had been so ingrained in the idea of, of baptizing babies, it was just blasphemy, and they could never see past it. And for them to say that you don't baptize your babies, and you wait until till that baby has grown up and has their own profession of faith, well, that was child abuse, and they, they forbid these Baptists to teach that. And they, in every other kind of way, tried to make them stick in the orthodox, sanctioned churches, denominations. They actually called them establishments back in those days. And Baptists would not have a, any of it. I'll give you a couple examples. In 1651, Obadiah Holmes. He had a, a descendant of his, was a guy you may have heard of, Abraham Lincoln, but that's much, much later. But Obadiah Holmes was accused of proselytizing for Baptists. In other words, he was telling people what the Bible says, that Baptists believes it says, and he was right. He was imprisoned, put in a cell in Boston prison. He waited weeks, but it had already been announced ahead of time that he'd be punished by 30 lashes with a 3 corded whip. Now, he was just like you. The idea of being in prison wasn't pleasant, and the idea of being beaten publicly, humiliated, like that was, in terms of, of facing that, was very troublesome to him. But he wrote that in the days before his whipping, an unusual calm came over him. Although his captors tried to keep him from speaking, he would not be silent. And so before they beat him, he said, I now come to be baptized in afflictions by your hands so that I may have further fellowship with my Lord and not ashamed of his sufferings. For by his stripes I am healed. They tied him to a post. The officer who was tasked to see him, met out a sentence, spit in his hands, grabbed that whip. And with all of his strength, he flailed him 30 times. And yet Holmes again said that the presence of God was with him as no other time in his life. And when the pain of the scourging had ended, they untied him, and he stood up and he smiled. And his words remembered forever were, "You have struck me as yes, with roses." In Virginia, during the 16, 1760s, and 1770s, this is shortly before our revolution, more than 30 Baptist pastors were jailed for illegal preaching in the colony of Virginia. Virginia was the home of Madison, Thomas Jefferson. Even in jail, they still had strong. The confidence in god one james ireland would stand at the jailhouse window and he'd preach and over time lots and lots of people would come gather around that jailhouse window and they would listen to him preach the authorities would do everything they could to try to stop him they would burn noxious stuff to try to drive the crowd away none of it worked they urinated on him while he was speaking some of that crowd were african-american christians of course what the white authorities did to them was drag them away and whip them and yet all that persecution that stand that cost a great deal would have a backlash in the minds and the hearts of those founders of this country who yes knew the bible very well but many of them had enlightenment thinking but these baptists and their standing for liberty of conscience and soul got produced in first some some acts within the state of Virginia, and it ended up producing the First Amendment to our Constitution, the mother of all of our liberties, and that's religious freedom. And that has been a precious gift to us. It has been spread across the planet in many ways and has made it possible for the gospel to be heard. In many ways, it would never have been heard otherwise. All of this we are thankful for on this July 4th, and all of it ultimately comes from the hand of a God who's blessed us, who's been generous with us, Who's made possible for us in a way that was never possible for others, that we might lead a peaceful, quiet life, live a godly and dignified life in every way, and advance the gospel of Christ as Paul told us to do. And so, on this day, we pay tribute to these American freedoms and the sacrifices that have been made and the people who've made them. But above all else, we ought to be thankful and humble to God, who is great and who, in his great mercy, has given us what we don't deserve. America did not deserve the blessings he gave to her when we got them. We don't deserve them today. We don't deserve them in this moment. And we're still enjoying them. He is a generous God and he's been a generous, certainly to us. Of course, he's not just generous to us as a nation. He's been generous to all of us personally. He's been generous to you. The one of you that might... Be certain that you've had the most difficult, unjust life possible. God's been generous to you. Did you know that whatever treasure you might have, everything you've worked for, everything you've earned, everything you've acquired, it's all come because of what first God gave you to earn it with. What has God given you? What has God given you? Everything you have, everything. First Corinthians four seven. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? You know, the tragedy of our lives is we take the gifts of God for granted, and then not we stop just taking them for granted, we turn around and start taking credit for them. And so somehow we are their source. James 1.17 says, Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. That's why 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, you've got to do it all for the glory of God, because it all came from God. Paul said in Acts seventeen twenty five, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. If you're breathing this morning, today you're going to breathe 20,000 times. That's every one of those breaths are God's gift to you. And if he wills it, he's going to give you another 20,000 tomorrow, and those will be God's gift to you. Every dime you've ever earned, every dime and nickel you've ever had from a paycheck, every square inch of your home, every piece of cotton in your closet, every last cent of your savings, one day he is going to give an account of it, but you have it now because he gave it to you. It came from the hand of a generous God. The generosity of God that we experience started in creation flows through redemption. It started back in the eternity past where God chose you if you were saved before the foundation of the world. It continues now by God working the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in your life to bring it to completion. He is the source of every good gift, and He has ordained that stream of that fountain to stretch on into an eternity future. When by the unfathomable generosity, God is going to take us fallen, sinful people, but forgiven and redeemed, and we're going to stand before Him face to face one day as righteous, faithful, deathless, and joyous. And that's your destiny in Christ, and it all comes comes from a generous God. When Jesus taught us to pray. He taught us those radical words to start, our Father who art in heaven. No one ever thought to pray in an intimate terms like that of God is my personal Father, but He is the perfectly heavenly Father. God's generosity is seen in God, our heavenly Father. In Sigrid Unstedt's great novel, Kristen daughter, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right. If my name was Ostike, I'm sure I could do it, but I just, I don't know. He wrote a 1928 Nobel Peace Prize for literature about a Norwegian woman who lived in the 14th century. In the novel, Christian's father, Lavrons Jorgason, had a reputation as an incredibly generous man to all those who lived and traveled through that region of Norway. But to no one was he more giving and more generous and more wonderful and to his children. And so in the novel, there comes a point when Kristen, his daughter, is now an old woman, and she falls asleep, and in her dreams, she dreams about her childhood. It goes like this. She was stepping over the threshold into the old hearth room back home. She was young and unmarried. Near the hearth sat her father, whittling arrows. His lap was covered with bundles of sinews, and on the bench on either side of him lay heaps of arrow points and pointed shafts. At the very moment they stepped inside, he was bending forward over the embers, about to pick up a little three-legged metal cup in which he always used to melt resin. Suddenly, he pulled his hand back and shook it in the air, and stuck his burned fingertips in his mouth, sucking on them as he turned his head toward her and looked at them with a furrowed brow and a smile on his lips. It's a beautiful, poignant picture of a fatherly generosity, as though proverbially the arrows in his hand. And this warrior, yet bringing the crafting together to use them to provide and protect his children. His generosity as a father was material, emotional, relational, gracious. Often in the story, his daughter would fail to reciprocate that. It would bring great sorrow to his life. And yet as long as he had life, he loved her. God is generous like that. He is a heavenly father who is amazingly generous to us. Do you know where God's generosity begins? Where it's established, what the bedrock of it is? The bedrock of God's generosity is simply this. God is. God is. Many times I've tried to talk to people about the relationship with the Lord and the claims of Jesus Christ, and they all start spouting off, well, they think God is like this and God is like that. And I say, how do you know God is like that? Say, how do you know that God's not like, like Adolf Hitler? Some child molester, some peeper sneaking in the wind. How do you know that God's not like that? And of course, he's not. The greatest thing we know is that God is. And the God that he is is the great foundation of his generosity. In fact, his name is God is. That's his name. Remember Moses, the burning bush? Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What am I going to say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say to this, the people of Israel, I am, God is, has sent me. So parents, when your little one comes to you and say, well, but who made God? Who made God? The best answer you can give them is, no one, dear. No one. God is. And that's the basis. It's this foundation upon which all of our lives are built. He is utterly self-sufficient, fully realized, has no deficiencies whatsoever, needs nothing. And yet he comes to these creatures that he's made and he gives them good and wise gifts. To appreciate how generous God is, you have to know that He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anyone. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. Whatever He's doing in our life is not because of some neediness in Him. And certainly, He owes us nothing. And yet, He gives over and over the gifts that we need most of all. Creation where the Bible begins it's not just an issue of the age of the earth and all the details about how it happened at the heart of it the post doctrine of creation is that we exist that we are here and that itself is a pure gift it's In the chronicles of narnia aslan comes and he says to his creatures the magician's nephew aslan of course the figure of christ and he says i give you yourselves he made you and everything in your life, every potential, every everything that ever it comes because he gave you life. He is generous. He's generous to all people, but for those who are redeemed, who come to know him personally, oh how mighty and wonderful is that gift. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I ask you today, why are you here today and you saved? Why do you know about Jesus Christ? Why was God done such a work that you would believe and hear and understand and follow him? Why has God set his love upon us? Why has he set his love on us that we could be here and know him? There's only one answer. Because he loves us. That's it. Just because he loves us. The same reason he loved his people in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 7, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It wasn't because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to the fathers that the Lord has brought out you out of with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. To those who know him, who are his, he's incomprehensibly generous. You're saved, you're redeemed. and That generosity goes beyond what you can imagine. So I ask you this morning, do you think that God cares about you? Does God love us? And do you think that this God who loves us, who saved us, has given us the resources so that we can face life and do it in a way that champions the things of eternity and brings the greatest blessings to our lives and others? Some of you say, well... Well, yes, I guess. I guess, but you know, I I got salvation, but I I probably need something more. Some people spend their life looking for something more. Some special super duper, some guru, somebody, just a little bit more. And so God gave us a, a dose of supernatural grace, but it was just enough to squeak by. Maybe it's enough to get us saved, but it's certainly not enough to sanctify us. It's certainly not enough for us to live victoriously and triumphantly for Christ and and live as He called us to be, to move forward like He's called us to be. If we come to Christ, if we come to God as what He provides for us now, what He'd give you leaving this building today and throughout this next week and the rest of your life, is it sufficient for you to live for Christ? I'm here to tell you today it is that God is not stingy. He didn't dole out a little doublet. When He saves you, He does not give us barely enough to just get us out of hell, but not a whole lot more. He gives us everything we need. Back to Exodus, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. You know, Lamentations, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. God, great, great, not little, not small, not partial, not kind of, but great is your faithfulness. Oh, God is very generous. Psalm 103, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. The announcement of the coming of Jesus Christ, we read in John 1, for from his fullness we have all received. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace upon grace. He says the devil who comes to you and lies to you and who attist your thinking, he has come to do one thing as he tries to lead you into sin, to kill, still, and destroy. I know some of you here today and you've had a belly full of killing, stilling, and being destroyed. But Jesus said, I've come to do just the opposite. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. We didn't get part, we got fullness. Jesus says, the Bible says, Paul says, that we're not only the children of God, but we're heirs. We're heirs of God. joint heirs with Christ. That'll blow your ever-loving mind. I don't know how to start even thinking about that. 1 Corinthians 3 says that no one boasted men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas of the world or life or death or the present or the future. All things are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. All things belong to you. Who do they belong to? They belong to believers. They belong to some special kinds of believers, to certain believers, some believers. No, they belong to all believers. Paul was writing this to the church at Corinth, for heaven's sake. If you know the New Testament, you know the Corinthians were the sorry bunch of Christians. We can find in the New Testament as a whole. And yet to even them, he says, all things belong to you. It is the nature of God to be generous. And when God gives salvation, it's the fullness of salvation. It's grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy. It is all that God can give. He says we possess the world. God made it for us. We possess life, spiritual life, eternal life, all of that in Christ. We possess death because for us to die is gain. We possess things present. Everything that makes up our life, everything in this life, everything we experience, the good, the bad, the pleasant, the painful, the joys, the disappointments, health, sickness, they come. We don't always like all the parts of it, but we can know that God gave it to us to work together for our good and His glory, and that makes all the difference in it. As we possess things to come, we think of the eternal rewards and the glories of heaven, the new heaven and the new earth to know that we belong to Christ, Christ belongs to God, and it's all wrapped up in that, and we're right in the middle of his generosity. 1 Corinthians 2.9, but it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man has imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. There's not a one of us here who have even tasted a minute portion, just a minute fraction of the generosity of God. There's not a one of us who have gone far enough in the waters of his generosity to really know how amazing his eye has is still not seen and ears not heard. But all of us can go a lot further than we've gone. We don't have to wait till heaven. We don't have to wait till we cross over. We can experience a whole lot more right now. 2 Corinthians 9 and 8 says, And God is able to make all a grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, in all times, you may abound in every good work. A generous God has dispensed superabounding grace. We can't even yet conceive of it all, but there is no reason for us living in spiritual poverty and defeat. If you have Ephesians, if you have the Bible, just turn to Ephesians. Let me just put an exclamation point, just a few verses there. Chapter 1, blessed be the God. In verse 3, put an exclamation point. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Chapter 2, verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. And he ends with that great doxology. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. That's what we have in Christ. Sometimes I meet a Christian they're wandering around. They're looking for something more. I just, I just need something more. I don't know. And some self-help guy or some, some super-duper or some lightning flash, some bolt of something, some ecstatic experience, something, something. What more are you looking for? There is no more. You couldn't want any more. Colossians 2 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For if you have Christ in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. God is not stingy doesn't give a kind of salvation that it's enough to get you saved but not enough to get you formed into Christ over your life or maybe you think that grace is enough to get you saved and maybe it's enough to work and help you make a little process for sanctification but it's probably enough not to get you all the way to heaven no no but he started he's going to finish if you've been saved he's going to finish this job you have eternal life and eternal life means eternal and it's already started now, maybe you think he's given you enough grace to be saved, or enough grace to be sanctified, and enough grace is going to get you all the way to heaven, but it really isn't going to help you be victorious and strong when you face all the problems and struggles and misery and things that this world has thrown at you. That's simply not so. The Lord will meet every need in your life so that you can be true to him and count for him and your life can count for him. Psalms 84, for the Lord God is the son and the shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does so we withhold from those who walk upright. I'm telling you, nothing's missing that you need. Now, maybe you're here today and you say, that all sounds good. You talk fast, preacher. You say, you're loud, you're shouting, but <sighs> it just doesn't feel very real to me. Let me give you a couple of reasons why maybe it doesn't seem real to you, why the generosity of God is something you just really can't buy into. A couple of possibilities here. First of all, maybe you're not really saved. Maybe you don't have a relationship with Christ. Maybe you grew up in church, you had religion, you did the right things, you think you believe the right set of facts. You did all the stuff you were supposed to do. You tried hard, even at being a follower of His, but you just somehow never met Jesus. You never turned from trusting yourself and your sin and you never turn to repentance and really found life in Him. His Spirit does not dwell in you. Of course you don't have it. You need it today. Don't wait another second. Turn and humble yourself and ask Him to save you and to transform you and to come and dwell in the uttermost parts of your being. Second reason, maybe maybe you are saved. You do you really do. We're born again. You know Him, but, but you're just ignorant. I don't mean that in a way. I'm just saying you don't know. You weren't taught. Somebody didn't show you this. Paul writes to the Ephesians, the reason he writes the letter, that having the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you and the riches of his glory inheritance in the saints. You need to know about his riches and how he can meet your needs. And the third reason may be one that I think many of us can identify with. I sadly have to tell you, I've had seasons in my life where I could identify with it. Some of them were days when I was a preacher leading a church. But I wasn't walking uprightly. I wasn't walking in fellowship with the Lord. I was carnal. You can sound religious and be real carnal. I'm telling you, Jesus was right. He is the vine, we are the branches. Apart from me, you get and can do nothing. I'm telling you, you can deal with every one of those. If you're away from the Lord today and you know you're his, but you're away from him, I know one thing about you, you're miserable. I don't care what you have, what you're getting, you're miserable. There's no fun. Your life's a battlefield. The spirit of God hasn't left you, but you're miserable. Get out of that misery and come home. Remember again how much God loved you. If you just thought somehow you had to do this on your own, no one ever showed you the riches of God in Scripture, I'm telling you, just understand how much God wants to bless and help you and work in your life. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him also graciously give us all things? If Jesus died on the cross to save you, don't you know there's nothing he'll withhold to make you a success in living for him? And if you're here and you've never come to Christ, I'm telling you today, come home. Come to Jesus. You'll find he has riches like nothing. You know, in the New Testament times, the one time a person in Palestine had lavish lavish living was when they got married. Those wedding feasts are a big deal in the Bible. Because they were so, that's the one time when everything which is wonderful. And Jesus says that's what salvation is like. Matthew 22, 4, again, he sent other servants saying, try those, tell those who were invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves. I've been slaughtered. Everything's ready. Come to the wedding feast. Come to Jesus today and, and he'll wash you. He'll cleanse you. But then he doesn't just do that. and say, right, now you've you made a terrible mess, but I'm going to allow you. No, he makes you the honored guest. He throws a great, lavish banquet for you. You know Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. The boy who squanders everything, who spits on everything his father raised him to stand for. He he wasted it, messes up, and then he turns around and he comes home. And the father doesn't beggarly say, all right, you can come home, but boy, you're on trial now. You don't get to go back to your room anymore. You're going to live over here. No, none of that. That he expected, but none of that. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, his shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. This my son was dead. He's alive. He was lost and he is found. And we are going to celebrate. That's the generous God who right now wants to do a great work in your life. God has not said to you, well, I'm going to save you, but don't expect much more. He wants to give you the best of everything. And so let's finish up. Where should we finish? Let's do, how about Second Peter 1.3? His divine power. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life. That's everything you are. And godliness, that's reverence. That's, that's a godly, fearing life. Through the knowledge of Him. Not just doctrines. Not just the Bible. Those are all ways we get to Him. But it's knowing Him. Personally knowing Him. Seeing Him. What we sang, that last hymn, to see holy God in Jesus Christ. But through the knowledge of Him who has called us to what? Mediocrity? who has called us to just getting by, to living a lukewarm life, hot one day, cold enough. No, but it's called us to his own glory and excellence. Why would we live for anything less when you have a generous God like this? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that God is. Thank you for the grace that means we is. that we have life, and more than that, we have redemption in Jesus. a Redemption meant to not just start us in this life, but to walk with us and to make us all you deseem for us to be. Oh, Father, help us follow you with all of our hearts, mind, and soul. We pray this today. And one thing before we go, I want to take you to the most basic verse in all the Bible, Romans 6.23. Romans 6.23. I'm concerned about those who may have never been saved. You know this verse, the wages of sin is death. You die even before you physically die. Death means we're cut off from God. Sin has entered God's good creation and cut us off from God. We have spiritual death now. Without salvation, you can't really know God as you are meant to know him. But that, if nothing's done about it, it becomes eternal death. It calls hell. That's what we earn. If we get what we deserve, that's what we get. But, but you know this verse, the free gift of God is eternal life. That eternal life begins the moment you believe, the moment you trust it, the moment you bow your head and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I deserve nothing. I have nothing to bargain with, but I I lay myself at the foot of your cross where you died for my sins, and I ask you into my life. The free gift of God is eternal life. But listen, listen, don't stop there. Because some of you heard that message and you said, eternal life, hell? Hmm, I think I'll take eternal life. But you didn't read the whole verse. Where does that eternal life come from? Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This life is in Him, in knowing Him, in receiving Him, in determining to follow Him. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Him? And if you don't, settle it today. Just a moment, we're going to dismiss this service. I'm going to be at the front. Other pastors will be here. We'd love to talk to you about your walk with Christ. We'd love to talk about you can can know that Jesus is your Savior. I hope you'll make your way. I'll be here till the last person leaves. Come, let's talk. Let's follow Jesus.